Hey everyone, thanks for checking out No Guitar Is Safe, episode 3. We have a really special show for you today, and I mean that because this is one of those shows where we're going to transport you into another world. We're going to take you into the world of James Valentine, the killer lead guitarist of Maroon 5, one of the most successful bands in the galaxy, hands down. I love how so many of their songs start with these funky James intros. That's James's intro to the new single, Animals. It only has like 225 million spins on Spotify. That, of course, is the intro to Moves Like Jagger the song with which Maroon 5 basically broke the internet, the most downloaded song in iTunes history, at least it was for a long time. And that, of course, is the intro to the hit single, This Love, that finally, after years of touring in greasy vans and paying dues, finally put them on the map. Maroon 5 broke through with that song. Yeah, they became a multi-platinum band the old-fashioned way. Of course, then lead singer Adam Levine gets a gig as a celebrity judge on a hugely popular TV show, The Voice, and that just catapults the band even into further success. They've sold 48 million singles and 27 million albums and counting. It's kind of crazy. But the best part of it all is that James is just a cool dude. He's funny. Let's start a wedding band. He loves to take huge solos. And most of all, he's a total bro. Check out this bro move, and then we'll get started. I gotta tell you about what James did for us, for you, the listener. The day of our interview, last Wednesday, he texts me to cancel. Why? Because, well, he wants to postpone to the next day. He's listening to the Joe Satriani episode, which is episode one, and he realizes the potential of this hang, and he says, Man, forget the little amps I have at my house right now. Let's book a five-star facility tomorrow, and we'll set up my full-on arena rig. And that's what he did. He brought in one of his techs, Dave Lee, and they set up this beautiful guitar rig designed by Mark Snyder. And you're going to hear all about it and hear it in action. And of course, I have to spend the opening asking James about that incredible stage the band plays on. That thing is just like the eighth wonder of the world. We're going to put you on that stage, and he's even going to tell you some funny spinal tap type moments when things go wrong, even on a multi-million dollar stage. Thanks to Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com for making this happen. My name is Jude Gold. Let's hop in the guitar chopper and head over the hill to Burbank, where we find James warming up his rig on some chords that he borrowed from one of his favorite jazz players. Here we go. No guitar is safe. Beautiful, man. Thank you. No, that's uh, that's Bill Frisell. Oh, I love Bill Frisell. Yeah, he's one of my favorites. That's yeah. I always play that at Soundcheck. 
It's really pretty quartz. Yeah, I interviewed him once on stage at Yoshi's for you know, sound check. He was a really thoughtful guy, really cool. He's got the exact opposite rig from yours. He's got a few pedals, kind of unplugs yeah, them yeah. between songs, just randomly, I'll plug this yeah, one in. Yeah, for yeah. <laughs> this is like a city right here, what you got going on. Yeah, we built this city. Um, <laughs> Very fun. <funny. laughs> that was a little Jude, Jude joke. <laughs> yeah, that, that joke comes up quite a bit. <laughs> Being in that band, but yes. uh, it's not only a city; it's a beautiful city. I mean, it's very colorful. Oh, thank you. Like pretty lights. Yeah, I, I've always had like uh, very simple sort of setups. Um, and on this last tour, me and my tech, Mike Buffa, we said, "Hey, let's just go for it. Let's bring out the refrigerator rack and let's just see what that's all about." And it's been fun. You know, I don't, I don't know if I'll do this forever because it's. It's a lot of stuff to take everywhere, but it's been great, and it, it's been great for, for us because we pretty much play the same set from night to night, so I know exactly all the sounds that I'm going to need, so I can have it all programmed here. Now, first of all, I just have to say, the last time I think I saw you is we talked after the show at the Forum. Congratulations on an insane world tour you guys are doing, selling out everywhere. There's two sold-out nights in a row at LA's Basketball Arena, the great, great place to play. That stage you guys have... How much does that thing cost to make, man? Just give it to me. Oh man, I um, I turn a, a blind eye <laughs> towards those sort of costs because I don't like to think about it. But yeah, it's it's we we want to put on a, a big show, you know. And I think yeah. people expect, uh, and we've been lucky enough to get to this this level. And I think people expect a great show, and that's not just the music, but it's also the visuals and the whole experience. So. So I think, uh, you know, this was my favorite tour that we've done in terms of the production. And we worked with oh, this yeah. amazing genius designer named Roy Bennett, Fantastic. who's done like work with Nine Inch Nails and Lady Gaga. And, and we came up with this, this stage concept that I think is, it's, it's really amazing and intricate, but it's also at the same time pretty, uh, it was more stripped down and, and rock and roll. Oh, it's amazing because it's very stripped down, great visibility, but yet, completely visually dazzling to the audience members no matter where you're sitting in the arena can you describe to people who maybe haven't seen your tour yeah. yet what is the stage like it's we're on this this giant glass box um this giant glass box we can fill with fog and then throw different lights inside of it uh to create all these different sort of moods within the set and then there's these giant glass columns behind us that also would fill up with fog and we could do different things with the lights and then we have a a lighting rig that moves around and changes shapes in the way that those lighting rigs always have except for there's new technology that allows them to do the new things that that they've never been able to do before. And then, of course, you also have this gigantic runway going out. Like Yeah, the ego like, ramp. The um, ego ramp. So we call it. Um, that's great, too. You know, it gets us out in the crowd, and it turns what could be average seats into great seats. And right. then, I, you know, I think that everybody feels like they're they're up close to the band. Tell me how you guys enter on your tour. Well, on this last tour, um, we start with the song Animals. Um, I love that riff. Play that for me. Oh, yeah. So, we, which is... Um,
nice. <laughs> There's a, my attempt at the vocal melody through a bone dry uh, half stack on two here. Does Adam Levine play these? I'm playing through this uh, Mesa rig over here. Yeah, yeah. He, he, I believe he still plays through those Mesa. It's like a triple wreck. Triple wreck, yeah, just like full blast. Yeah, so we, we come yeah. out, because uh, that song's called Animals, we start these these sort of animal noises, like jungle sounds that sort of creep in. Like before the lights go out, all right. of a sudden you realize that you, you're hearing like like the sounds of the jungle, and then it gets louder and louder, and then the lights go off, and then the crowd goes crazy. And, and you got some of that fog pouring off, right? You guys got the expensive fog, the kind that stays at knee level and pours down. Oh, yeah, exactly, yeah. That's the expensive fog. <laughs> <laughs> Which is cool. Yeah. Otherwise, the other, the other stuff is just smoke. Yeah, exactly. No, this is creeps, yeah. Pouring off. Like the, the dry ice, yeah. And that's the first thing I remember seeing as I was pouring off the stage is your beautiful pedal board. Like, you got this mastermind thing that is so gorgeous with all the different colors, lighting yeah. through the fog yeah i mean with the fog it helps so this mastermind you know i have the whole set list programmed into this so i can just scroll from song to song and then have each section of the song for example on animals i have the intro which is just the you know it's just like a, a stereo delay and then for the first verse i just do the i have these swells and it has this auto swell And then for the second half of the verse, I've got this filter sound that we uh, dialed in this, this custom EQ filter. So it, it kind of does the DJ sort of effect. And, uh, and so I can, manually, I can manually pump that with my foot. And then we've got, you know, like by the end, I'm full on. Yeah, so yeah, that man, first of all, that guitar is just perfectly intonated. Um, and your rig, this mastermind, utterly silent switching. You're changing like who knows how many pedals. And yeah, yeah, it's all living there in the rack. It's a combination of, of pedals that it's uh, triggering, uh, but also getting the delays and the wet stuff from the Axe effects system, and we're using that for its effects, which is great, and it's, it's very easy to to program all of it. And oh, cool. I had no idea you were using that. Where do your amps live on stage? They're like underneath. Yeah, they're behind the stage. We decided a long time ago that, that a quiet stage was going to work better for us. It just it gives the sound guy more control. We had, you know, between like Adam's amps and my amps, it was getting pretty loud up there. So they're actually behind the stage facing away from the stage, and then we're all on ears. It wasn't my favorite thing to do at first it was kind of a tough transition because of course as guitar players we love to be moving that air behind us we also love to go back and turn the volume knob up exactly a few times a night right exactly <laughs> and so so taking that away it, it i mean it's better for the overall show uh, you know and a lot of times i still end up taking an ear out just so that i can hear the the sound of the guitar actually like moving through the room itself i love that that sound you know yeah. 
And of course, you guys have one of those crowds that's like 75% female, which is, that's a lot of upper mids right there, That's a lot of upper mids, too. And so as I'm back there singing uh, background vocals, of course, it also helps to be on ear, so that's a lot easier. And then when you go out on that runway, you're like a 100-yard touchdown away from from stage. It wouldn't even really help you to have your amps there anyway. Yeah, and uh, that's, yeah, once I get out on the ego ramp, it's very important that my ears are completely in, because if I hear the the delayed sound that's actually coming from the PA by the time I get to the end of that ramp, then I can really rhythmically be screwed up. And that's especially the case when Adam and I go play She Will Be Loved, which is just me and him acoustically. Oh, so you can hear there's like a delay on there. And that's kind of what what I hear from yeah. the PA on top of it. So I have to be sure that my ears are in. Otherwise, I'll get screwed up by that slap back rhythmically. It's really disorienting, too, to, to play to a oh, delayed yeah. sound. And then for your bandmates who are on stage next to your amps in that situation, they're like, what is he smoking? Exactly. Now, um... I have this theory that every band has at least one spinal tap thing that happens to them, like on a tour that happens over and over. Tell me about the balloon drop at that oh. show. <laughs> oh, I was talking to you after the show, and the oh man, you were saying, yeah, we, uh, you know, and and this was like Adam was really set on this balloon drop. He wanted the balloon drop to happen at the end of the show, and with all of the amazing technical things that happened during our show, I would think that the balloon drop would be the most simple. You have a giant net that contains balloons, and at a certain point, you release the net, and the, <laughs> the balloons fall. And we tried four nights in a row, and I think, you know, three different companies that we hired. Companies that, you know, this is what they do. They drop balloons. <laughs> yeah. And no, it never worked. Never worked. We finally gave up on it. I think after the third company that we hired. I know I was there, and I remember like twelve balloons fell, and I was yeah. like, "Cool, let's watch. Wait, can't wait till all ten thousand of them fall." They would just be the net would sort of open, a couple would trickle out, and then they'd just be sitting there. <laughs> and you know, it, there was a specific moment where it made sense, and then like by the time we're like walking off stage, then they all start falling. Oh, it was yeah, a yeah, fiasco. Whose job is it to deflate every one of them? And after, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, I I was talking to your tech, Dave Lee, here. Hey, Dave Lee. One one of your techs. What's up? And uh, he was saying that Adam kind of got a little pissed after that one at the forum, the show I saw. Oh, yeah. What did he do? Um, You know the story? Oh, oh, yeah. I forgot about that. (laughs) Yeah, he had this beautiful Steve Vai gem. He's been playing these on this, this last tour, and the balloons didn't drop again, so he... Maybe he was trying to get the balloons down with his guitar because he... He just, he threw it pretty high. He got some good height on that toss. Oh, yeah, 14-pounder, and he got it pretty high up yeah. in the air, destroyed. I guess that was, a, that was a Lucite, like a clear gem guitar he threw in it. Yeah. Dave was saying it not only smashed the guitar, when it, it also smashed one of the plastic or glass panels on your the oh, stage yeah. so where it landed. All kinds of destruction. I think he was also yeah. disappointed that I think there was going to be a moment where, the, where that Lucite guitar was going to, because it has interior lights, and uh-huh. so he wanted all the lights to be off on the stage, and then for only his guitar to be lit, and it wasn't really that bright. <laughs> <laughs> I think... I remember when I was a kid, I won tickets to see Rick Emmett from Triumph. He kicked ass that night at the Oakland Coliseum, and I think he had one of those glow-in-the-dark, like, loose Yeah. My last question about the stage is your guitar tech is like, you know, he's like downstairs in the garage or down a flight of stairs. Yeah. It's pretty far from you. Does that ever make you nervous? It's not not like uh, 
back in the day, you know, when we were playing the smaller places and he was right there where I could just hand him something. He it's a long, long run to get to me. But Mike Buffa, great tech, always over prepared. So knock on wood, not much has gone wrong. He only has screwed up one time in in the last however many years he's been working with us, like well, almost ten years. One time he screwed up. And uh-huh. It was it was pretty bad. <laughs> he's gonna hate that I'm telling this story, but hey, no, first, <laughs> I of all. first of all, let me say that he's the most amazing tech, and I'm so lucky. And the the only time that he's ever made one single mistake is when he, uh, you know, I, on the, uh, our shows I have uh, guitars that are tuned to E and guitars that are tuned to E flat because we play a lot of the songs drop down one half step in order to make it easier for Adam to sing. Yeah, for especially uh, for two and a half hours. For you two and a half hours, you know, so we'll just drop drop it down a key, but in order to keep it in the, the sort of open guitar keys, we'll do them in E-flat. On this tour, we were starting with the song Misery, that is this riff. It already hurts, man. Where are you going with this? Yeah, it already so, hurts. So it just starts with me and the drums, and I'm playing that riff. But the guitar that he had handed me is actually tuned to the wrong key. So the band comes in, and they're a half step off. And PJ, our keyboard player, who's uh, you know the the definitely the best musician on our stage, he hears before he even starts playing that I'm in a different key. So he just automatically changes. So. So me and PJ are, are together, but the rest of the band is still comes in on you know on the key that it was supposed to be, and we're a half step off, which means that it sounds horrible, and it was so confusing, and it was the first, it was chaos, and we just had to stop playing. <laughs> I love it, man. It's, I love that stuff. You know, I saw Nels Klein once play for, uh, God, it must have been 200,000 people in Golden Gate Park. Mm-hmm. He's playing with uh, Jeff from Wilco. Tweedy. Jeff Tweedy, thank you. And uh, he starts off a song, man. And it's a big guitar intro. And the guitar is a little teeny bit out of tune. Honestly, I didn't really notice. He just stopped after six bars. 100,000 people just kind of tuned by ear, you know. He started the song again. I love that. Man. Yeah, I love yeah. those real moments. That's awesome. One time, Adam and I were at the Billboard Music Awards. Oh, man, it must have been like 2004. Evanescence was playing. And I think they had a similar thing happen where the, the guitar was tuned to the wrong key. And they were playing with a live orchestra. <laughs> you know, and, and I think, you know, non-musicians were just like, oh, well, it sounds a little weird, but okay, okay. But like for all the musicians, we're all looking at each other being like, oh, oh, Dave Lee also has a good story. <laughs> what, what happened there? <laughs> oh, yeah. Wait, Dave Lee, tech to the stars. You, you, you got to tell this story. <laughs> okay, B.B. King was doing a, a, a Christmas tree lighting ceremony. Maroon 5 was playing and B.B. King went on right before them. <laughs> he gets out of the limousine. It's 20 degrees outside. He gets out of the limousine with Lucille in his hand. Obviously, the limousine's about 90 degrees inside. And he is his tech, which really wasn't a tech, his, his valet, actually, is getting the stand together and getting it ready to go out there. And I, I volunteered to tune Lucille for him. I said, Should, you want me to tune that for you? And I, the guy says, yeah. And I, I said, well, standard or, or what? And the guy didn't know what I meant. I said, just tuned regular? He says, yeah. So I tuned it, you know, regular, standard, gave it to him. I'm all excited. <laughs> and took a couple pictures while I'm tuning Lucille. And so I give it to him and I run to the dressing room, my phone and the pictures in it to brag to the guys how I tuned Lucille for B.B. King. <laughs> 
And as I walk in there, I, I go, hey, guys, check this out. And Matt, the drummer, knew immediately what was going on. He tried to stop me with the, you know, across the neck thing. Stop, stop. But, I, you know, anyways, I just go, look, guys, here's, here's me tuning Lucille. And James here <laughs> is watching. They're all watching it on a screen backstage. And James looks at me and goes, listen. <laughs> and uh, I didn't realize the orchestra was tuned differently we didn't have the orchestra with us it was just with bb yeah. king so the orchestra was not tuned standard they were tuned uh, a little bit i think flat or sharp whatever yeah well, I mean, it was the middle of winter so yeah, and, uh, it was, and it was just but bb king didn't seem to care he just yeah, ripped just through anyways you know just kept playing <laughs> and he was more worried about the cold than anything else but took a picture with me afterwards smiling he didn't care <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story dave lee dave yeah, lee everyone god bless bb king too <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. You gotta watch out for again, Yeah, and I have to say, you know, that was the only time Mike ever oh, yeah. screwed up. Absolutely, that's worth it. That's a good story, and yeah, I mean, for a, a guitar tech to have only one mistake so far, yeah. Mark, I would is the best record I've yeah, ever heard. Great record, <laughs> great record. What's your favorite riff to play on this big stage? Well, when, you, when you start, what's your, some of your guitar moments? This rig is divine. You know, "Harder to Breathe" is always a fun song to play. You know? That's like our most rock riffy sort of something about C sharp minor just yeah. rocks That's a fun riff to play. You can just um, hear the drums in there, even though we're not hearing them now. It's just so groovy. Uh, Lucky Strike is a fun one to play. That's kind of like a... Um, How do you deal with having a stereo rig? I mean, this, I know this is kind of a new thing. Um, stereo effects in an arena setting. The cool thing about this setup, because as I've sort of flirted with stereo effects in a in a large venue before... It's dicey because, you know, if you're on the wrong side of the arena, then you could get a weird mix if you're really spreading this stuff out stereo. So the solution that we found, we have three cabinets. The center is dry, completely dry. And then the left and right have the stereo effects mixed in so that our front of house guy can have the dry signal and blend that with the stereo effects to make it work at these individual venues. And we found that was really the only way to make it work. You have to have that dry signal, otherwise it can get totally washy. But then I can still have, because, you know, I like the wetness and the those effects, I can have those in my ears so I still feel like I'm in a space and not just, you know, in a aquarium like you can sometimes feel like when you're wearing ears. Exactly. You can get, get, the, get the vibe. Yeah, You exactly. can d dial up the talent and... Soul knobs, exactly. AKA exactly. delay and reverb. <laughs> and and I, you know, for a long time, I I, I didn't really add those effects because I I went through many years where I thought, okay, I don't want to rely on reverb or delay. I want to make it sound good, just as like bone dry. If if you can make it sound good bone dry, 
then you're on the right path. But then after, you know, 15 years, I was like, okay, now I'm going to have fun with uh, doing some delays and guitar players. Yeah, we're we're always changing. It's always something new. You get, you you switch up the sound, you get some new inspiration. Exactly. Yeah. So um, that's a beautiful telly you got there. What was your first guitar though? What made you even want to pick up a guitar? (sighs) My first guitar, well, what made me want to pick up a guitar, you know, I had an older brother. He was seven years older. Uh, which was very important for me. And when I was 10, he played me Rush. And specifically, I remember hearing YYZ and then having like the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Um, so I heard that and was like, oh, okay. I don't know what that, I don't understand what that is, but I want to do that. That's awesome. That song. And then also at the time he was listening a lot to Joe Satriani surfing with the alien. And that was an excellent podcast, by the way. Oh, gee, thanks for taking it out. Voyage. Yeah. So I heard that stuff. I was like, okay, I want to play guitar. Uh, and I was already taking piano lessons and I was also playing percussion in the school orchestra. But I was trying to get my parents to buy me a guitar, and finally, when I was 13, for my 13th birthday, they got me an eight-week crash course at the mall at Schmidt Music Center in Lincoln, Nebraska. You got a Fender Squire and a little Fender practice amp for eight weeks, and you went to group lesson. I think the first song that I learned, uh, there's a great teacher in Lincoln named Dave Boy, who was my first teacher and uh, still stayed in touch with over the years. And he taught us power chords. So I think the first one was uh, John Fogarty. It was like, life is like a rodeo. So I was like, okay, that's cool. And then I think we also learned, of course. Which then later I found out that they actually played it like... Yeah, that's the thing you end up finding out later. Me yeah, too. Me too. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff like that. So we learned the power chords, and then I was kind of like off. And uh, of course, I distinctly remember driving back from one of those lessons during that eight-week crash course, and I heard uh, this on the radio for the first time. So, like, you are annoyingly young. Yeah, well, I mean, of, to a lot of people, I'm very old now. That I remember hearing Smells Like Teen Spirit on the radio. That actually dates me. That was even more <laughs> annoying. What you just said was even more annoying. Okay, keep going. Yeah, so, so then, and it was, it was, it was amazing that, that grunge sort of hit, like, the same week that I started playing guitar. Because, of course, like, all those grunge tunes were perfect for, for guitar. It's, you know, it's like, and that's what was on the radio. And so, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden... Alice in Chains, um, Mud Honey, um, all those bands, they became really important. I remember Pearl Jam Alive, this was one of the first things that I figured out. That is such a great song. Such a great road. Yeah, and then, so I really got into that. And that's actually, like, that solo from that song was kind of my entry into blues. Because it's got that great solo of the... 
I don't remember all of it. But uh, Mike McCready, you know, like he was really into Stevie Ray Vaughan. And I think I remember seeing him wearing a uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan t-shirt and then being like, all right, who's that guy? And then that was kind of an entry into the blues. I think for me, the, I learned the pentatonic stuff from David Gilmour, like, you know, oh, yeah. 10 years earlier, whatever. Yeah, that was a... Love it, love it. What was your first gig that you remember doing? Um, well, I had a band called Montag, and we, we actually, we formed the band long before we even had instruments. It was like with, with three of my best friends. Originally, we were called Headache. It was me and my friend Shane, my friend Caleb, and my friend Nate, Nate Walcott. And Nate, who would go on to become one of the members of Bright Eyes and is, is now a film composer here in L.A. And we formed our first band together in Lincoln uh, back in the day. Wow, Lincoln bringing it. Lincoln was, was bringing it. You know, it was actually a really cool place to grow up. There was a really cool uh, community uh, of musicians that really supported younger musicians. Uh, there was a great blues bar called the Zoo Bar, which was kind of this famous place, and that was the the first place that I, that I played a, a professional gig when I was 15, sitting in with with a, sort of an older band. Did you learn anything from your first gig? Did you uh, walk I'm, away with anything? I mean, I learned that I loved being on stage, and I got such a buzz from being on stage that I knew that I was going to be doing that forever. Now, uh, at the same time, I remember in one of our interviews, you said that uh, you were president of the student council or something? Um, yes, I was president of the, the student council at Lincoln Southeast <laughs> High. Why? Uh, <laughs> why? Um, well, first of all, that's an impressive feat politically. Thank you. But, um, but why did you go that direction? Well, I was I was doing a lot of different stuff in high school to sort of pad my resume because I wanted to get into college. I wanted to get out of Nebraska. So I was trying to do everything. Right. I love I love Nebraska. I love where I'm from, but I wanted to get out there into the the wider world. So I was I was doing everything I, I could, you know. I love I love Nebraska and it, it was amazing to to be from there, but I did want to get out of the Midwest and sort of see the world. Montag was my first band and you know, we would do like covers of Pearl Jam and 311, another great Nebraskan band. Um, and then I, you know, in high school, I joined the jazz ensemble at school because it was the only place that you could play guitar. And then I really got into jazz for a while and I would, I would play sort of like lounge music at different places in Lincoln, uh, at weddings. We'd get hired to play like, uh, in different ensembles. Sometimes it'd be like a trio or a quartet. Cocktail music. Cocktail music. You know, I used to do a lot of those. I remember this wedding coordinator came up once to very stressed out these wedding coordinators. And she was like, you guys are playing entree music. Play salad music. <laughs> salad music. Salad music. Wow. <laughs> okay. But that was, uh, you know, and I really liked... Right, that was stuff was really fun to play. actually made you know good money sort of doing that we would play different events and hustle different gigs and, and with some of those guys they started a band that was kind of more of like a fusion funk band and we'd sometimes have like like MCs come 
do rapping and we we wrote some songs it's kind of like funny songs that i would sing and stuff and um that band was called kid quirk star and that that lasted up until the band square square was with uh some other guys from nebraska and that was the band that that brought me out to la because uh at one point the the employees at the local music store entered us into a battle of the bands that was sponsored by ernie ball guitar strings and you know we probably we thought that we were too cool to to enter a battle of the bands like that but they entered us and we made it through the first round and you know there were these all these different rounds uh like the city competition and then the the sort of state regional first part you know we had some recordings that they entered us in and then it was actually like live playoffs that were judged it was a weird band we had a singer we were a power trio it was a a guy who played fender Rhodes keyboard and synth bass with his left hand and he sang and then it was me on guitar and a drummer so i was the only person like standing up on stage so it kind of featured my guitar solos and we were they were kind of fusiony almost like we we're kind of like between a jam band and like ben folds five or like steely dan on uppers you know like <laughs> uh so i mean we, we used to like, <laughs> Man, I haven't played that for 15 years. That that was a song called Chrome Plated Mustache. But that so we ended up winning that Ernie Ball Battle of the Bands finals were here in LA. You have to arm wrestle the other bands as it <laughs> We 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 performed at the Mondrian I remember it was the hotel that was in the movie True Lies, which was a big deal for us coming from Nebraska. We we had stars in ours. But we won this Battle of the Bands and we won $25,000. Wow. Which was a lot of money. Thank and you, we use that Ball. money. Yeah, thanks, Ernie Ball. That's wow. why I still have a lot of love for Ernie Ball. We use that money to move out to L.A. because that's that's what bands from Nebraska had done to to sort of make it. The musicians that had come out of Nebraska and and done anything were at the time it was Matthew Sweet who was from Lincoln and he moved out to L.A. and then had his uh, hits in the '90s and also the band 311. They moved out to L.A., and that's where they got signed. And so that was what we thought we needed to do. And so we used that money, and we moved out to L.A., or what we thought was L.A. We actually moved to Anaheim. Um, I'm behind the orange curtain. Behind the orange curtain. But we thought that, oh, this is all just L.A., and it's it's not really. Right. You tried to drive to Hollywood, and it took you 90 minutes. Yeah, exactly. But being in in Orange County ended up being a good thing for us because we became friends with a lot of Orange County bands down there, like Real Big Fish. And I I actually toured with them for a while when their guitar player broke his arm playing. Yeah, uh, it was... It and then you, t- you took over for him again when you like fell down the stairs or something. So that was fun, and that was the first time I had played in front of like what was his name? Uh, Aaron Barrett. Yeah, and and Aaron Barrett, he also took me to see this band that he really liked called Cars Flowers. So that was the first time that I saw Cars Flowers, which were the other four guys that would become Maroon Five after. I joined. I saw them play at the Glass House in Pomona, California, and uh, I had this strange experience. It was almost this mystical, spiritual sort of experience. I, as soon as they started playing, there were four of them on stage. Jesse uh, was playing keyboards and guitar and sort of switching, and I could see that they needed another person, and I was like, I'm going to be in that band. I just know that I am. And at the time, I was fully committed to Square. I was in Square. We were all living together. We were out there trying to get a record deal and trying to make it. 
but I just had this weird feeling. I was just like, I'm going to be in this band. Like, I can just tell exactly where I fit in. They had taken some time off, done some soul searching, and in the meantime, had really gotten into hip-hop and soul music. And they were sort of starting to bring that in with the elements that, that they already knew, which was sort of more from the rock, Beatles, classic rock sort of thing. And what they were doing was really cool, and I was totally on board. And I could see exactly where I would fit in because I had sort of come from the funk, fusion, jazz sort of background, but, you know, also liked rock. So I could see where I could fit into this whole thing. How'd that go over with your guys you moved out with from Square? <laughs> um, well, it was, it, it, was, it was very much like I was in a marriage. I was married to the guys from Square and it started off really innocent where I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go over, you know, I'm just going to jam with those guys. Like, cool. <laughs> Don't worry. It doesn't mean anything, you know, like, and then after I uh, became friends with them and started jamming with them, they asked me to play more and more gigs, but it was always just like, well, until we find another guitar player. You slut. S total slut. I'm a total slut. And then eventually <laughs> they actually sat me down and formally asked me to join the band. And I had to make a really tough decision. And still to this day, I think it's one of the hardest things that I've been through in my personal life because I, I had like a week to decide. And on the one hand, I had these guys that I had moved out with from Nebraska. And, you know, we had already been through all these things together. And also that band was more, it was more about my guitar playing. You know, it was, it was it featured guitar solos on every song. But I, 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 I could just, I just knew that I had to join this band. I, I just had a feeling. And so I, it was pretty dramatic because I was living with those guys at the time. So when I joined what would become Maroon 5, Jesse drove a U-Haul truck over oh, man, while the other two guys in the band are sitting on the porch with their arms folded while I'm just moving my shit out of the house really with, well, with yeah. like the, the new guy, you know, with the new band. It, it was, it was Bonkers. Wow, I had no idea it was like that, but I suspected maybe something like that happened. So then you guys uh, became Maroon or Maroon 5? Yeah, uh, we changed our name pretty soon after that because I was joining. It was a completely new sound, so they decided to, to start fresh. So we changed the name. Of course, the origin of the name is a secret that I cannot divulge. We, this is the time right now, right here. Nope. Sorry. You're lying. I'm not. You tell this to everybody. It's a secret. Is there actually something, some cool story back there, or is it just a mystical, pay no attention to the story behind? I guess you'll never know. Oh, man, this is tragic. <laughs> now, how did you guys um, get signed, I guess? Well, uh... What did you do? Were you just playing clubs around L.A.? We were playing clubs around L.A. and Orange County. I mean, Cars Flowers had been signed while they were still in high school, and they had put out a record back in the 90s that was a flop you know it didn't it didn't really do much but they did have a small devoted fan base like in la and orange county i mean you know like we could fill up almost like you know a hundred person club some nights not every night uh, so we were playing shows and you know they they had been around in in the industry so people were checking them out but basically all the major labels passed because if you put out a record and it doesn't do well that's ba you basically get one shot out here right and people were like no that didn't work so we pass and everybody passed every single label in town had the opportunity to sign uh maroon but everyone passed except for this small independent label called Octone Records, which was this new experiment that was being started by these two guys, Ben Berkman and James Diener. And basically what it was, was a farm team. James Diener, he was an executive at J Records. 
But he got his own funding, and they started this independent label that would develop acts to a certain point, and then they would be fed into the major label once they were grown enough. That's kind of how it's supposed to be, you know? That's the way it should be, yeah. But at the time, that's not really what people were doing. So we started, you know, with, with we had a very small budget to make the first record, and we had a very small amount of tour support. Songs About Jane? Songs About Jane. And uh, over the period of month after month, we kept on getting a little more airplay, a little more attention, and eventually... After a couple of years out on the road, it, it kind of exploded. I remember I told you I got that album across my desk, like just a blank disc, like no artwork or anything, and Maroon 5, and I was kind of digging it. And my buddy Dave Cotter, who's a funkosaurus, just Google of funk. This guy mm-hmm. should have his own radio show. He's got a thousand funk vinyl records. He's like, oh, man, you should check these guys out. They're pretty cool. And I'm checking them out, and it's really funky. What The main riff, of course, to This Love. Oh, yeah. Obviously, that stands out. Yeah. Well, that's, that was really cool. Like, I remember at the time, because after I quit my other band, I was homeless. So I was living with Jesse and his girlfriend. His girlfriend was not thrilled about it. All of a sudden, she's got this, like, loser guitar player, <laughs> like, sleeping on the couch. But I remember one morning waking up on the couch, and Jesse is playing the This Love chords on the piano. And that was the first time I heard it. He's, like, doing... course it's hard to play the bass line of the chords the same time. so you play the bass line one kind of soft one two three is that the tone you use though or is it more in the middle what pickup setting are they uh no that is not the patch dial let's, in, let's brother. go to the patch I love it's not that, that different boom verse this love oh whoa that's pretty wet see i think live like we don't actually mix in the... No, dude, I'm fully with you. Have the fairy dust in yeah, your I've ears. Yeah, I've got the fairy dust in the ears, but you don't can, hear that. And the this, this front of house can mix what they want. But, uh, of course, you know, Harder to Breathe came out before that, and right. that, that, that did pretty well as a single, but then This Love came out was was a huge single, and I just love the fact that that was a hit single. I don't know how many hit singles start on a diminished chord, you know? I love it, man. I used to play your song at weddings. That's awesome. See, that's that's yeah. that's what what makes me stoked. Like, I love when music is. I love playing at weddings. I love playing at like weddings are, are the best, uh, the best place to play because <laughs> everyone is in such a good mood and and you're really it's it's a real true celebration. And then I don't know. I just feel like when you're playing music at a wedding, you kind of like it reminds you of like the primal ancient use of music you know what i mean because that's like an ancient ceremony that's that's been with us since the beginning of time and you really tap into that energy when you're playing it i'm going to start a wedding band let's start a wedding band that reminds me didn't i see a video of your band now maroon five where you guys crashed some weddings or were those actual surprises or is that all staged Uh, that video you know it ended up really just exploding uh the song is sugar (laughs) 
then I actually do these chords in the chorus, which is a little bit of a stretch, like. Yeah, I like like that voice. And actually, we were trying to figure out in the studio how to voice that because it's it's kind of a weird weird chord. And Dr. Luke, who's an amazing guitar player, obviously, he came up with that. He's like, no, just try it like this. That's great. So now, and the video. Oh, so the video. Yeah, we uh we went to to three real wedding receptions that we we crashed, and we didn't completely crash them. The groom knew that we were coming. The groom knew, but the brides did not know because we actually did sort of sneak in the back and then have the curtain drop. And the people were genuinely surprised, as you can see in the video. It was fun. That was the most fun video that that we've ever shot. Now, so where were we? We were talking about breaking through, man. You guys slogged it out in the van for so long. Yeah, we just, we played clubs. uh, We opened up for everybody. We spent a lot of time going to radio stations and actually performing for the staffs uh, of the the radio stations not even performing on the radio but we would our label would like buy pizza for the radio station and we'd go in and play acoustically at lunch for them just to be like hey check us out it really worked i mean we we really worked extremely hard during during that time i think like that was the real real thing that that made it work you know it, it, we would play a show and then drive all night in the van We'd be in the the parking lot of the radio station, you know, wake up, run into the bathroom, you know, sort of like rinse out our armpits, try and try to get ourselves together, walk into these radio stations, and then drive to another radio station and do it across town and do it again and then play shows that night. I think, you know, the people who work with us now, knowing how lazy we are now, would <laughs> never believe... I'm looking at you, Dave Lee. They would never believe the amount of work that we actually put in during during that time and and that's what I tell young bands you know who are just seeking advice and stuff I'm like it's it's not easy I mean you have to go really you have to get out there and you have to meet those people and you have to build those relationships and for every band that does exactly what you guys did there's a probably a thousand more that did the same thing that never made it it's true it's yeah brutal. And that's, that just gives you the chance and then the rest of it's still just up to the universe You've had so many monster hits, and I love the ones, of course, that start with guitar, like Moves Like Jagger, I think. Yeah, I mean, Moves Like Jagger was was a turning point for us because that was, for the first time in our career, that was the first time that we had really worked with an outside writer. Up until then, we had been self-contained. We we didn't want to work with anyone else in terms of the writing, and we we took pride in the fact that every note on the album was written by us. But then we... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, like Adam was passed this demo of of moves like Jagger before it really had the lyrics. the The lyrics to moves like Jagger were actually X rated before the real lyrics were written, and that's how a lot of pop songs come about. Absolutely. You know, they just have sort of nonsense placeholder lyrics, and I can't, I can't even, I would be too embarrassed to tell you what moves like Jagger was actually about before it came out. We heard it, and we're like, well, okay, let's give it a shot. You know, this is something different for us. But at that point, you know, we were. 10 years in it was like it was time to sort of shake it up and so you know it's a very cool even though it is a very electronic dance sort of tune i like that it still has the guitar (laughs) 
voice. Yeah, I get the melody. Yeah, I, and that's the thing. Uh, Shellback, who who wrote that melody, is he's a weird, mad genius, and it has that that Swedish thing. The Swedes, yeah. man. Hey, man. They're brilliant. You look Swedish. I am Swedish. Oh, I'm a quarter, so I kind of. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm Swedish and Danish. Those are my people. Now, um, you've worked with some amazing producers. Some of you just described. We also, I know you work with Nile Rodgers a little bit. Shellback, and have what are have you? Have you seen any or been introduced to any really cool, new-to-you guitar production techniques or recording approaches? That Whoa, that was cool. Well, I mean, first of all, speaking of Nile Rodgers, Nile Rodgers almost produced our first record. Meeting him for the first time was actually hugely influential for me and Adam in terms of how we approached the guitar in Maroon 5. He was one of the, the possible candidates to produce songs about Jane, so we met with him in New York uh, at SIR there. And when we met with him, we were jamming in a rehearsal room, and he just walked in with his guitar on his back. And before we even said anything, he plugged in and just started jamming with us. And we literally didn't stop for 30 or 40 minutes. We just played. And in that time, seeing Niall do all of his stuff up close, all the single note... You know, and all that single note, and then the, you know, that that was really super influential in terms of how we would attack those guitars then on the rest of our records for the rest of our career. That's a good question. Any other great performances in your life that you've seen, that, like guitar performances that just blew your mind or anything? Oh, yeah. I mean, tons. I mean, you know, of course, when I was really going through my jazz period, seeing Pat Metheny, seeing John Schofield... Um, Seen Bill Forsell, those guys, you know, really, they're all so incredible in, in their own ways, you know. And, you know, for a long time, I just wanted to play instrumental music like them and just seeing how much they could express with, with just the guitar, you know. I mean, it wasn't a guitar performance, but I remember seeing Ben Folds 5 in high school and just being really inspired in terms of just the, the show that he brought and the energy. I mean, that was just a trio that... It was like they were, it was a tiny club that they were playing at too, but it was like, I swear there was like more energy than like an ACDC in an arena, you know, like it was so awesome. You know, of course, growing up seeing Rush, who was a huge influence uh, early on. You just sent me that photo. You were, Where did you, did you go see them and recently? And I just went and saw them on Monday night. It might be their last tour. And because my older brother had introduced me to Rush and then we had bonded over their music when I was very young. I took him and, and we actually got to meet Alex and Getty, which Sweet. was awesome. It was very interesting to, to go through and do a meet and greet on the other side. Because every every day we do these meet and greets with fans that I've always thought are, you know, it's, it's you try to make it a, a good experience for the fans, but it's just hard because there's a hundred people that you have to meet in a certain amount of time. So you kind of just have to keep on running people through, and it's hard to have a genuine sort of interaction. And I was one of those people in line going through to get my picture snapped with Rush, which is something that I would never do except for with Rush, because it's Rush. Did you say, I'm in a band called Maroon 5? Yeah, my brother, sorry, but it was like it was like one of those things, we were just the cattle just being sort of 
<laughs> taken cool. through. Next. Like, yeah, cool. Snap. Peace. Later. Yeah. But it was great. I got the picture. Yeah, That's you got the picture. About. That's great. I, <laughs> I ran into Nile Rogers at Denver Airport, and I got a great selfie with him just uh, like a week ago. Oh, that's awesome. But anyway, so yeah. I know you've worked with like th- these guys, these pop art- architects like Shellback and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And they really, like first of all, the new single, Summer, the bass on that tune is crazy. Yeah. It's just so pumping. Like you got to have someone who knows how to bring all that stuff together. How does the guitar fit in there? And have you done any cool recording techniques now? That I, I mean, those new- guys... Because, uh, you know, a lot of, of these contemporary productions, it is very much about the drums, it's about the bass, it's about the synth, so it's it's difficult to find where the guitar fits in. So it's almost like from an EQ perspective, you're like, okay, what space is left for the guitar? I think it's just a phase. I think that you guys will come back to a guitar-heavy album one of these days soon. <laughs> I think so, too. Um, but it sounds wonderful. I mean, it just makes any stereo sound like a trillion dollars. Yeah, yeah, and I I think that stuff is, is so precisely engineered to do that. And so I think a lot of times your your guitar tracks, you know, they'll end up really messing with the EQ maybe to, to shrink it down. You know, I'm a fan of like a big, round, warm guitar sound, but a lot of time there's just not the sonic space in these sorts of productions for that. So they'll use, you know, bit crushers and different EQs and filters to sort of narrow it down so that it can fit in these recordings and sort of poke through. I love it. Yeah, you were telling me when you did the Jams record, which I guess they're now called Phases or something? Yes. You said something about how the producer took a guitar part and then created a MIDI file of it and oh yeah that was that was something that was really cool that I've I've sort of started to experiment with since then there's there's some different ways you can do it what he did on this solo was he ran it through Melodyne and if you run it through Melodyne you can spit it out as MIDI yeah I mean Melodyne is a deep program that you can do a lot of crazy stuff with in terms of processing I mean it's incredible that you can play a chord into Melodyne now and it can pick out the individual note. You could change one note in that chord Wow! out of analog guitar audio. But it, what it can also do is spit out MIDI. And so that's what he did. He put it into MIDI and then added some synth sounds behind it as a texture, which was really cool. And I also have the, uh, the Fishman triple play MIDI pickup on one of my guitars that I use sometimes as I'm recording guitars to get the MIDI automatically. And then sometimes you can edit that MIDI and do interesting stuff with it. That's a very sort of contemporary thing to do. Then instantly you could have a keyboard double the guitar part that you could you have play. a keyboard double the guitar part, or you could put that keyboard, you know, put that through an arpeggiator where it becomes a completely different part. Yeah, no keyboard skills or writing music skills necessary. <laughs> exactly. You don't need any skills. Did you get any kind of a music degree? Where'd you go to college? I went to the University of Nebraska, but I was studying advertising because every single person, including my guitar mentor, told me that I wasn't going to be able to make a living playing music. Shout out to Peter Buffard, who was my my, uh, guitar teacher growing up, an amazing, amazing player himself. But he was like, you know, you might want to have some backup plans. And he was totally, totally correct. And that was good advice then and it's good advice now i happen to be able to make a living though which is crazy (laughs) you guys have done pretty well it's astonishing now it's cool to see adam playing these gems out there you guys actually throw down a lot of people don't realize that he throws down on the guitar quite a bit yeah yeah he's he's a great guitar player player. you know he's a he's a and that's what we 
initially to you know initially bonded over and he used to play a lot more guitar as the the songs sort of became more ambitious to sing he played less and less guitar which which was great for me because that sort of opened up the position in the band for me because i mean some of these songs are quite challenging to sing and so he can't really be doing both but he does have a couple moments where he gets to come out and bust a solo and he's he's very much from the sort of like I mean, his his sound is like it's very bluesy, but it's it's very like slash. Like he was really into hair metal, and like I think you really hear that in his playing. And I mean, of course, he's playing through you know like hundred watt heads, and you know the the Steve Vai. You know that's 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 his sound. I think I was at one point at, at your show, I was doing something annoying, like posting on Instagram or something, mm-hmm. and I heard the loudest scream, and I I knew what had happened. I knew it was Adam had taken off his shirt. Oh yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's an insane noise when that happens. In the, it's like I ever eat a candy bar. You ever seen him like drink an IPA? What's the deal? Is um, he a gym rat. Yeah, he's he's become a, a bit of a, a gym rat. I guess uh, him being on the Voice has really helped you guys. Obviously, you know. Cause yeah, he's, now he's an American public figure and totally. Culture. And and it ended up really benefiting the band because we had been around for a long time and we had actually had a lot of successful songs. You're already like a multi-platinum band before that happened. Yeah. It, it, we were also kind of a faceless band. We were, you know, one of the, you might recognize the songs, but you might not know who actually performed them. And so I think when he got on the show, it allowed a lot of people to connect the dots and say, oh, that's the guy from that band. And they do that song. I like that song. Oh, they do that song too. Oh, they also did that song. I like all those songs. And then all of a sudden it clicked and more people started showing up at our shows. So we weren't upset about that. So, um, you got to tell me about this this beautiful rig here. Now, first of all, I don't even know where to begin, but I'm looking at a double wide rack. You got the sewer head, you got a matchless head. I guess maybe you're running in stereo. You've got drawers with effects. I see an OCD pedals peeking out there, but there's probably some other stuff in there. Got the axe effects. You got your three cabinets here, sewer cabinet in the center, and then the matchless cabinets for the wet on either side, right? Yeah, yeah. So I have the sewer head as the main dry center signal. And then the matchless is driving the affected channels on left and right. And basically, I, for years, I had a pedal board that was pretty simple. I mean, I guess not that simple, but a, a pretty big pedal board. We basically just took all those pedals and then put them in the rack so that uh, I can instantly sort of dial up any combination of those. Because with all those pedals on the ground, it was pretty complicated. It became pretty complicated tap dance to get the sounds that I wanted. And what's cool about this mastermind is I have this whole set list programmed in. So here we're on moves like Jagger. I've got verse Jagger, filter verse Jagger, bridge Jagger, outro Jagger. Um, so I can go through that way. But also but also I, I have those individual pedals on the the board as well. So if I decided that I was on the verse Jagger sound and I wanted to add octafuzz to that. I could still do that if I wanted to, which is cool because maybe I want to do that. Yeah. I probably wouldn't, but <laughs> no, it's yeah, it's always good to be able to kick it into you know manual mode exactly yeah so you have some rows at the top that are kind of connected to your pedals yes i've got a couple expression pedals 
for these two, which is cool. Again, like doing a filter sort of sweep thing for Jagger, I can do. I love that you do that manually, like with the pedal. Live. Yeah, it's it's, cool. it's fun. I you know I like to keep those controls. But tell me about the different racks you have there. I know you yeah, have well, Axe Effects. Yeah, the Axe Effects is great. I mean, of course, it, it does the the amp modeling amazingly. Um, but in this case, we're just using it for its effects. It has a huge bank of of different delays, reverbs, choruses, compressors. And it's amazingly simple to program. So it's great for that. And, you know, in the future, I'll probably experiment with doing a whole show with just that unit, which you could easily do. We've thought about trying that for some of these fly dates where how awesome would it be just to take that one unit and then just plug into the PA and go. But uh, I do like, uh, you know, coming out of these real cabs for now. Now, for as far as your your grind, it sounds really good. Like when you kick into those lead tones, is, it, is it that a pedal? Is that your amps? What's happening? It's usually a, a combination. Oh, there's like at the end of like Sugar, I do a solo. That one is just like the clean amp with the OCD pedal from Full Tone is just my favorite. Awesome. A little loud. Sometimes I use a combination of like the Dirty Channel and the OCD, which is super, you that's great i'm also not usually this close to the actual amps but the attack when you have both going like that you get I love that fuzz tone that I think you kicked in on Oh the yeah. Battery dying tone. What? Oh yeah, that's the uh that you just would kick that in randomly at the forum one night you told me i wasn't I just spontaneously kicked it in yeah yeah every time i kick that in my sound guy thinks that something is dying <laughs> we, i'm like that's kind of that's the point i love it man so now your main guitars are telecasters usually is what i usually yeah, see telecasters have been uh they've been good for me when i joined the band uh i was playing more gibsons uh sort of les paul and um and a Gibson ES346, because I was, at the time, before I joined the band, I was kind of playing more jazzy sort of stuff, so I was always trying to go for that warmer, throatier tone. But then as I joined the band and we started doing more of the funk stuff and the rock stuff, I needed something that cut through, and the Telecaster does that. And it's kind of been a good all-around. You know, I don't like to switch 
guitars during the show like the the less that i can do that the better so the fact that the telly can do so many different things is is yeah. worked for me a winning guitar the telecaster <laughs> yeah there's always a place for it in a mix or something totally three di- the three different sounds it makes are just incredible yeah. Now you also, I know I've seen you play some other guitars. Maybe you want to mention like Fano guitars. And yeah, I love I love the Fanos. Um, the P90s give me a sort of different sound, and the Fanos are beautifully made. They look beautiful, and they're they're great to play. Um, I also play a guitar made by a Swedish luthier named Johan Gustavsson, and he makes beautiful, beautiful guitars. I just got a new guitar that I'm very excited about called the Probit Rocket, built by this guy Damien out in London and it's got Mojo gold foil pickups which are really cool. I heard uh, David Torn play recently and he was playing through these gold foil pickups and I was like, whoa, that sounds awesome. I thought you were playing the Collings ones at your house. Uh, yeah, the Collings uh, is one of my favorites. They're, what's it called? The It's like the 55 or what, it's their sort of 335 sort of type of guitar. I love that. That's actually, that's probably the number one guitar that I play at home right now. And also, uh, I've got a, a Telecaster, two Telecasters. One's more is on the way, built by a guy named Bill Asher out in Santa Monica. And those are also excellent. Now, you guys still have tons of touring left for this this album, the, the five tour, I guess. Yeah. You're going all over the world. Did did I see that you have Dirty Loops opening a couple shows? We do. That's pretty cool. How did that happen? And I'm so glad you guys are fans of that kind of thing. I mean, they're a crazy inter- instrumental trio, right? Yeah, they, they're insane Actually, musicians. They're, they sing. I yeah, no, say. they sing. Yeah. Well, we initially were turned on to them from uh, a lot of the, the Swedes that we work with, uh, Max Martin and Shellback. They were all watching their YouTube videos. And our manager actually ended up managing them, signed them as clients. You know, the, this was uh, the f- first chance we really had to take them on the road. We're excited to do that because, uh, you know, I think a lot of our fans maybe have never seen that level of musicianship oh, on just, stage. I just love the idea of them opening at an arena show, that stuff. <laughs> coming yeah. through and i have to say your sound system is so clear i've been seeing concerts since i was 12 years old and live sound has come a long way i can't believe how clear it is in a giant arena oh well thanks uh, yeah the the technology has gotten a lot better of course you know the the, the meters and, and the ways that they can measure from seat to seat what's what people are actually hearing you know you see the the sound guys going around with their ipads that have these uh pickups and so they're measuring you know every square yeah. inch of the arena to make sure that everyone's getting the the best experience and we're very lucky to work with a, a great front of house guy named Jim Ebden who he knows our our songs inside and out now and has put together the the right system to to make it a, a great experience well cool um anything else on the horizon you wanted to mention or for the last few years I had another side project going to jams and when I joined that band it was a side project for all of us but eventually all their bands broke up, and so they decided to treat Jams as their full-time band. Actually got signed to Warner Brother Records, and the, the record's coming out on September 18th. Now they have a new name, right? And they changed the name to Phases because Jams was each of our initials, James, Jason, Alex, Michael, Z. And I'm no longer, I couldn't sign the new deal with them. Because of Maroon 5's touring, I wasn't really able to... See, you messed up their name. And I messed up the name. But now they're called Phases, which I think is a better name. They must have all new members. P-H-A. No, I'm just kidding. Not <laughs> <laughs> so now, uh, yeah, in, I don't, I'll, I'll probably start another side project for fun soon. Cool. Well, 
Let's play some funk and take it out, man. Let's do it. All right. Right on, So can you believe that James goaded me into asking him about the origin of the name Maroon 5? And I can't believe I fell for that. That's the last question a good guitar journalist would ever ask. So how'd you guys come up with your name? But he's a sneaky one. James, I'm going to get you back for that, man. But James is just super cool. You know the funny thing is I was talking to Dave, the tech, afterwards as he's packing up that rig. And he says, you know what? The weird thing about Maroon 5 is there's not a single douchebag in the band. They're all totally cool. And gosh, you know, that is a pretty nice thing to say about a band. And feel free to keep in touch on Facebook. Look for the No Guitar Is Safe Facebook page, where I'll be posting all kinds of photos and video clips, etc., from these interviews. Hope you enjoyed that interview with James. You know, he's got a lot of focus. I like that about him. Really good tennis player. He's always up to something. Most of all, I just love anybody who puts funk guitar or any guitar into the top 10 or the top five. Hit song after hit song. Thank you, James, for keeping guitar alive on a stadium level. Thanks again to Zoom for the great H6 recorder that we used to record the interview. And thanks to Guitar Player Magazine including Bill Amstutz and Michael Melinda, Editor-in-Chief. And, as Joe Satriani said, keep it alive until you're 95. See you next week. <laughs>